Hello, and welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Heather Hitchens, Executive Director of the Wing. Earlier this month, the theater community lost one of its greatest assets, when costume designer Martin Pacaldinas lost his battle with cancer. Pacaldinas was nominated for 10 Tony Awards in the last 15 years. He won twice, once for the 1999 revival of Kiss Me Kate, and the second time for the 2002 musical Thoroughly Modern Millie. In August 2010, Downstage Center broadcast an hour-long conversation with Pacaldinas. As the theater community mourns this tremendous loss, we are proud to bring you this encore presentation of that interview. While his first Broadway shows might stump even a seasoned trivia expert, costume designs by today's guest have been seen in acclaimed productions of Hamlet, Anna Christie, Kiss Me Kate, Wonderful Town, The Trip to Bountiful, Thoroughly Modern Millie, The Pajama Game, Blythe Spirit, and Lend Me a Tenor, and also at theaters across the country, including The Guthrie, The McCarter, The Goodman, Arena Stage, Hartford Stage, and La Jolla Playhouse, to name but a few. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I'm pleased to welcome costume designer Martin Paclaninas. Hi, Marty. Hi. Thanks for inviting me. Um, we were talking just before we began about the fact that you are just back from a vacation. You were able to free your mind <laughs> of, of all of this work, but you have two productions that are coming up. The reopening of Arena Stage with a production of Oklahoma and Anything Goes, which will be for the roundabout in the spring. Are you at work on one or both of these already? I am at work on Oklahoma. Um, I I could have been on work earlier, but I went on vacation. But – that one goes into rehearsal in about a month and a half. So we're having meetings to get the shop started. And it, it's it, we have the concept pretty well down. It's an interesting thing. I've only worked with Molly Smith, who's the artistic director, and directing this production once before. But the arena stage is has just closed down their theaters and is reopening them with the third, an incredible complex now, the three theaters within – a building surrounding the entire thing. And she wanted a musical, and she wanted a musical full of optimism and uh, looking to the future. Now, when they've done musicals at the old arena stage and the venues that they had, they would variously use the actual arena, the theater in the round or theater in the square as it was, um, or they would use the proscenium house. Where is the Oklahoma going to be? Is that... It, it is. Around. You know, the, the they still have the two spaces because the spaces were historically protected. Huh. Um, and so we are using the arena stage. So Eugene Lee has conceived a set that has it all taking place around and, in fact, even going up behind the audience. When I worked there before, we did Damn Yankees. And I have to say I enjoyed watching it so much I would be hard-pressed to see it in proscenium now. Well, there's something that's got to be – interesting for the role of a costume designer when you're working in the round in that the scenic pieces have to be limited because Mm -hmm. you can't block the view of so much of the audience. And as a result, the costumes and the actors are 
such a part of the show. I know that sounds a silly way to say it, but but the costumes take on more in terms of the sense of place and time than they might when surrounded by a detailed set. I, I agree with that totally. Um, there are sometimes in the round uh, – Incredible Tennessee Williams, I'm not remembering at the circle in the square here that I saw where the set was incredibly important. And they always remain important, but the clothes become, well, they're always three-dimensional, aren't they? But they become incredibly three-dimensional because they're turning around right in front of you. They're not turning around within a picture frame. So any any chance you have to use that becomes even more fun than it was before. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Oklahoma, obviously a show that's been done countless times, how do you approach something that is so ingrained, fresh? Yeah, that's that's actually, I think, one of the trickier things for me on this piece because, of course, I was brought up on the movie. I've seen productions. The last production in New York was rather fantastic. Um, I didn't see it, but I've been YouTubing it. And, um, and, and so you actually have to go back and do your own research. You always have to do research no matter how many times you've done a project because the whole sort of chemical situation of the new director, choreographer, all of those people, the set designer come in. All of a sudden you look at your research and you'll start pulling out something, something different than, than you've done before. Um, and in this case, we're finding our way. It, you know, it's one of those pieces that I, I think when I was young and callow, I would have thought it was totally easy to design Oklahoma. And now it's so hard. I don't know. I, I, I keep postponing starting it. Why do you think it's hard? Because of the shadows that loom over it or because of just discovering the, the period? No, discovering the period is, um, is, is the least of it. There's always a little bit of the shadows, um, especially if you're, people are talking about it and then you sort of realize, well, you can't – there are some things you can do and there are some things you can't do because if someone's done them before in a really strong way, then it won't necessarily be perceived as you inventing your own site that you actually copied, just to put it that way. So that can be a little tricky. But um, I think it's just finding the, the honesty of this piece for us. You know, there were a few jokes made by some uh, people about, you know, the movie and the way the movie looks. But, you know, I, I happen to adore the movie and that sort of old-fashioned cinemascope look of it. We're going for a different kind of reality, but we still have to listen to the music and to the lyricism within that music to tell us how I go between the points of, like, you know, reality of the frontier and an actual musical comedy format. Now, somewhat less iconic, though certainly a classic, Anything Goes. We've not had a major production of Anything Goes in some 20 years here Mm -hmm. in New York. Um, You said you're going to really start meetings on that next week. So before you sit down with Kathleen and the rest of the team, will you have done work to start thinking about what it wants to be or does the work begin with that meeting? In this case, because I know the period somewhat well, I might pull some images together. But 
I think for this meeting, I actually need to hear Kathleen, Kathleen's words come out of her mouth of where she wants to go. Um, I don't know. If, uh, I, I think that's as much as I can say. I mean, there are sometimes you go and you just go with like a big pile of research because you know that people are looking around. And chances are I will take enough to get us going. But I think this first one is just talking about the spirit and the feeling about it. So it's actually less visual and more emotional. The first response would be emotional. Hmm. Who are the other designers on the project? Uh, Derek McLean is doing the sets, and I am embarrassed to say that I don't know who actually accepted the lighting thing because I clicked out of town. <laughs> so you'll find out next week when you, <laughs> you know, the meeting. Once, once I shut down the design machine, that's Martin Pakladinas. It takes a lot to get it going again. <laughs> <laughs> when did you first get interest in theater, or was the interest actually first in clothes? No. I mean, I guess I had I, – I can remember drawing figures with clothing when I was a, when I was a kid. We A lot of us drew in our family. It was a big family and, well, I used to make the joke. I, I was, I'm one of seven uh, sons and my father was a sort of a typical guy of the 50s, 60s. Um, and it is true that if I was designing, if I was drawing a woman in clothing, I learned to put her in front of a Ford <laughs> to show that I could draw a car. Well, we should say because your father was working in the model making division of uh, General Motors. Okay, actually, so, so we I wouldn't have. But but you know, as a, as a, so as a young wait, boy, making a Ford was actually an insult. Well, <laughs> I know as a young as a as a young boy in in Detroit, Michigan, in those years, it was actually a game we actually had that you could spot a car. I could never do this now. I can I can tell you a car was maybe black or something, but at that point you had to be able to say that it was a Camaro or this or a Mustang or. What, whatever. Uh, so um, at that point, yes, I was a little more savvy about the visual language of cars. Hmm. But at that point, um, <clears throat> I think it was really uh, when my sister, Christine, started working with the local group that is, I think, no more. And they were the Macomb County community players at the barn, at the barn theater. Uh, who have recently refound me through Facebook. <laughs> and so I'm going to see some of them. I was, I think, 13, and I was, um, I was just captivated by the people. I was captivated by the music, obviously, because they did principally musicals. But I was captivated by the people and by the sense of community. And so everything just started following that way. I didn't think I was a designer. I've, uh, I, um, I, of course, I was hoping I would be an actor. Because <clears throat> it's interesting. I often find writers and directors who say they first wanted to be actors, designers usually <laughs> say, no, I always drew, I always did this, I thought uh, I would go to art school, et cetera, et cetera. So, so you were performing with this community theater group? Uh, yes, yes. I was uh, once voted the most exuberant chorus boy. <laughs> Not the best. Just, but I was very exuberant when I was on stage. Um, but I never had the – I'm just not an actor. I guess. So, um, and so, but it took me through 
early years of college before they convinced me that wasn't going to happen. Well, when you went to college, Wayne State, mm-hmm. did you go thinking you might be an actor? Oh, yes. <laughs> so you so you obviously had to have passed an audition to get into an acting program. No, well, it was undergraduate. I was sort of bumbling around taking classes and trying to be in things and frustrating anyone who tried to direct me because I just wasn't an actor. But I but I had it in my mind. Um and in fact, I think it's um and it's it's one teacher who finally had a uh gave me my moment of clarity when he suggested that maybe one day, several decades in the future, in film, I would start to get work. (laughs) And I thought, oh, golly, I can't wait till I'm 60. (laughs) (laughs) And so I flipped that day. I just went fine. Then I'll just turn into something else. But did you know what that something else was going to be or how did you figure out what it it would be? It was still complicated, you know, really, because if anything, I was a set designer first. I, I was a prop person at Wayne State University. In high school, I was in architecture and I was uh, highly regarded. Um, But I knew I didn't want to be in architecture. Foolish, because it would have been a good career, maybe. But but I mean, I... um, And then then in Wayne State, they actually said, uh, when they said that I couldn't be an actor, I said, well, then I have to get out of here. I was mortified. It's like, just let me graduate. And the only way I could graduate was to direct, become a director. I know. It was just, I don't know, it was the crazy, it was the 70s, whatever. They would just like play with your credits and say, if you take these three classes, ironically, you will be able to get a directing degree. And so I directed only a couple of things. I directed something that was conceded the worst thing of the year. Not the most exuberant? <laughs> it was <laughs> It was horrible. Even I, I love to play it back in my mind. It was, um, let's just say that uh, as opposed to staging anything, it was a very tense play written by a friend of mine and uh, no one would be in it except one other friend and so he and I were at pedestals and we were speaking the dialogue while I had ask me why Leonard Bernstein's Kaddish a mezzo soprano singing in the background <laughs> it was uh, it was not popular at Wayne State <laughs> but then ironically I picked the good doctor which you know had recently been on Broadway the Neil Simon play that People and not and with. somehow, I mean, I can't remember it. Of course, there's no record of it. But actually, um, it was very popular. And all of a sudden, when it happened, every actor started coming up to me and saying, "So, so, what are you directing next?" And all I could say is, um, "I'm not. I'm, I'm a designer now. I'm a designer because I'd already accepted to go to graduate school as a designer." But getting accepted to graduate school as a designer, then you must have had to submit a portfolio. I did have. I had been taking some classes. I'd been taking some – I don't know if I have anything left of that time. but And I guess I had been pulling some clothes. And I had a predilection. Everybody told me I was a costume designer. I would just mm-hmm. look away or something at that point. Um, but then I decided I should go into design and actually um, – I went between sets and costumes, but I had been a very shy kid and I had started being less shy. And I, my concept of a set designer would be that I'd be alone in a room drawing because that's what I knew from school. Whereas if I were a costume designer, I'd be around people all of the time. Huh. 
And that's how I made the choice. So actually getting into the training of it at that point, had you made clothes before? Did you literally have to learn? I did not. You know, uh, the University of Michigan was uh, the head at that point, Zelma Weisfeld, saw in me a designer. Uh, Sadly, for the other people in the department, in the costume department, she hired me. She gave me a... uh, scholarship if I could make clothing. But I had never touched a machine. I had no idea. It took the better part of a year. I frustrated everybody. I didn't sleep in grad school at all. But I did all of a sudden get that glimmer of light. And by the time I left, I knew how to sew. And uh, I always knew how to... I knew how to draw. And... um, And then I came to New York, I think, ready to really start to learn. Well, I'm curious... How much as a designer, especially if you have the visual proficiency to draw and you have the ability to research periods and process and understand, does a designer, costume designer, have to be able to make clothes? No, you don't. But you actually – I'm going to get chastised at NYU for saying that. Um, But if you can't guide someone to what you want – uh, then you'll just have a, a, tr- a trickier road. I mean, you know, the thing is, I yes, you should know how to make a costume. Yes, that is the proper thing. But, you know, in my in my life, I've gone around and I've been able to work around the world with so many different levels of designers and so many different people coming from things. And I see people with major careers and they sort of don't really know what clothes are, but they have a, a vision and they excite people towards that vision. So I... So I I guess I have to say you don't really have to know. You just have to find the people who will understand your language and be able to interpret it for you. By and large, 99% of us, we should know how to sell. Because it's interesting. I read that one of your early gigs was that you started sketching for Theone V. Aldrich. Mm -hmm. And I have seen costume designs by many different designers and the drawings – very wildly from ultra detailed to in some cases just truly sketches with swatches and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Where do you put yourself in terms of how much you really draw out the full visual and how much comes out in terms of the collaborative work between you and, and the people in the shop? It's turned into such a um, – there are so many varied ways you can go for a major show. For a lot of major shows, you have to be able to draw so that you can talk with your director and let's say it's a musical choreographer. They need to see it. They're not going to believe – I mean, you know, they, they might once in a while – take your hand gesture as a design and say that's fine. But you actually have to be able to show it to the general managers and the producers and you have to be able to get the costume shops to look at it and feel that they can price it really well. So you have to give them a lot of information. So on my larger shows where I know I'm going to have a bid session as we call it, they get pretty detailed. Um, And if I don't I'm not as good as other people. If I don't do all of them, if I have a group of six, 
um, and three are done. And then I say, and there are three more like that. And mm. that's usually enough to get people to actually price it. But, you know, there are so many times, I mean, there are so many times you do those odd little scribbles. But that's because you're, work, you're talking usually to a person of like mind. You're talking to the person who's going to make it. And you just sort of refer to things and you say two or three things. And because you both have hopefully a certain amount of knowledge, you understand each other. But that's not where you start off. Well, I jumped past, I mentioned, but but coming back, sketching for Theoni V. Aldridge, who was certainly one of the preeminent costume designers mm -hmm. uh, in, in that period. Um, how'd you get the gig, first of all? Um, I was working I was working as a shopper for Barbara Matera and uh Theoni's uh, associate I don't know if we were called associates at that point assistant Donna Thomas saw my drawings and uh saw some of my uh some of my photos of the work at uh, I had done a big show before I left school and asked me who drew and who accessorized. Um, and that was it. She had, Theoni had been looking for someone to sketch. It was hard though, because you know, Theoni has a very decided personal style that I never really got. I mean, you know. Got in the sense of being able to draw it? Yeah, I was mm -hmm. never able to draw what she wanted. I was able to put down on paper what she wanted. And in fact, I, people would sometimes, think I was designing, but I was, I was, I was putting things down as Theoni V. Aldridge. I wasn't, that's what you do when you're a sketch artist. Hmm. That's what you do when you assist anybody in any form, I think. You know, if someone assists me, I certainly want them to have a big, smart brain, but I want them to think along my set of rules if they're going to, if we're going to work together. Um, and, and I think that's what I did with Theoni. You know, I, I, she would start to lay down a, I would start to lay down a figure. She would lay some light lines on it. I would reinforce it. Whenever there was a question, I would take it back. So it was actually collaborative sketching. Oh, yeah. I mean, That's I mean, I, I mean, she could say, this, I've never said this getting taped before, but she's, um, she could say, maybe we have maybe we need three like that and then i could put down ideas and then she would correct me i mean it's the same way actually um fine artists do their paintings i mean you know it's like what Raphael had someone painting his paintings no one ever really did it by themselves hmm. so it doesn't take it away from the principal artist it just means that me as the assistant or the sketch artist i actually have to get into theoni's into theoni's brain and it only became a problem when I had to rediscover who Martin Pakladinas was after I left. It took a couple of years. What was that process? I think I had to just start realizing that I was making certain design decisions because uh, they were decisions that possibly Theoni would have made um, and that I was putting down rules for myself and I was forgetting – to uh, go back and have my own experience with the character and with and and with the design, I think it's. Um, I was very lucky early on. One of my big first regional gigs was a uh, Taming of the Shrew at Arena Stage. As a matter of fact, 
with Doug Wager directing, and it was all modern and weird. And the, if anyone will know what this is at this point, inspired by the Memphis design of the 80s and 90s. It was a whole sort of Italian school of thought. And I think just working on some things like that and listening to people, I started refinding how to listen to myself. I don't, I don't know how else to say it. Now, you refer to that as one of your early regional credits. That was 86. You had done a couple of Broadway shows. I referred to them somewhat <laughs> facetiously. In, in the intro, uh, Innocent Black, which ran for 14 previews and 14 performances, which was a smash compared to I Won't Dance, which ran for seven previews and one performance. Yes, yes. I um, still have a – Certainly that you were new at the game was not the reason that those shows didn't run. Well, no. <laughs> I think actually, but, I think one of them could, uh, accused me of possibly helping add to the demise. But um, um, that was rather intense because you know I hadn't designed since I'd gotten to New York. I, it's one thing to be an assistant and associate. You actually don't. I don't even remember how it came. I think Theoni got me one of those jobs, and the she got me she got me the one with David Merrick. As I won't dance. That, correct. And that um, uh, that was just – I don't know why that was hard. I mean it was um, – I just don't think I'd been doing it enough on myself. You know, when I was working with – this is very personal. I shouldn't <laughs> – when I was working with Theoni, I didn't ever try to take over for her. So I actually weakened a little bit as I worked with her because I, she was the designer. She was the boss. I would walk away. So to all of a sudden be designing, um, I had like lost some of those muscles. And so I think there were a little bit of tricky political things on that. The Innocent Black – I always felt bad because, you know, that was a theater. The director was Michael Pinckney, and he went to grad school with me. He had directed the big show I'd done, and he had come to New York, and Innocent Black had been running for like two years or something. I might be making up, but an incredibly long amount of time in a theater in Brooklyn. It was just one of those. It's the Billy Holiday Theater was, I think, what it was called. Really? That's, that was what our research I never turned saw, out. I never saw it. Mm -hmm. And I think they had something in that, in that original piece that had its audience and spoke to a lot of people and everything like that. And then it came to Broadway. And, um, and you know, there are some pieces that can live forever not coming to Broadway. You know, and and there are some of a like feeling that might come to the Beacon Theater. Would the Fantastics have run for forty well, one, forty-two Fanta years exactly. if it had been a Broadway show? A Broadway show, probably not. So you know. the venue can always always play a role. So it's interesting when you when you refer to your early gigs, it seemed like suddenly these these two shows that we just mentioned were in eighty-one. Um, in 86, at least in the material we found, suddenly there seemed to be an explosion of Martin Pacladinas because you were doing a bunch of shows for the York in that mm -hmm. period. You had the uh, the shrew at Arena Stage that you mentioned. You had Circle in the Square a year later than you're out at the Goodman. I mean, it really just suddenly you were full-fledged designer. How did you start getting those early gigs? Through people who were fantastic and looked out for me, 
Robin Wagner, Thomas Lynch, Adrian LaBelle. Those were three friends who all of a sudden started presenting me. And um, I guess I, I guess all of a sudden I had done one or two things and I just got picked up by a lot of people. I, I still don't I, – I don't know that I can ever answer it. I do know that – I do know that sometimes people thought I came from Yale, <laughs> and and and, but but I never said I did. I, I I was clear where I came from and stuff like that. But I ran with a group of people, and um, I think I actually, uh, you know, after the first experience of the first two shows, because the, I mean now if I was well, I'd be crazy to have two shows. I'd be happy but still crazy if two shows opened on Broadway in the same week. But at that point, it was like insane. I mean, you know, I was a kid and I had two shows opening and it sort of affected me in a, adversely because it was – they both sort of went – and I just sort of went back to assisting and slowly got out of it. But um, I can't even remember except that I think I started designing with my own voice and people recognized it. Could I say that? Because I didn't even realize we first met when you did School for Wives from Mark Lamus, first out at uh, La Jolla and then it came mm -hmm. to Hartford the following year. And that was in this period where you were just suddenly the voice was was breaking through. Yeah, I know. I feel lucky about that. I remember School for Wives too and actually I was – I was designing – in full strength, actually. I think I just had been gestating for years and it ultimately had to come back. Mm -hmm. Now, we could spend a lot of time going through all of these shows, but that would, would take us forever. Um, it's interesting that in the late 80s, you did several shows for the public. Then in the 90s, there seemed to be a whole series of shows for the roundabout who you continue to work with. I'm wondering about the relationship. Was it the relationship to the particular theaters and the people leading the theaters that got you the gigs or was it still based on either directors or friends who were involved in productions? Well, in those two cases, I think it was interesting because I worked with Theoni. I had assisted Theoni on a production of Hamlet starring Diane Venora. So I became uh, known to Mr. Papp. And then I went back and assisted William Ivy Long uh, when Kevin Klein starred in his – in the production of, of Hamlet that Lee Vu Chule directed actually. So I had assisted to – um, the shop knew me very well. The shop knew me as Theoni's person. So that was a benediction of the public that nothing else could happen. And I do think that that was very, very helpful in having Mr. Papp recommend me and bring me into the fold. And then what about all the shows at Roundabout? I saw a couple for Paul Widener, but then other directors. Todd Hames. It really was Todd. Todd. I mean, I just, you know, I didn't even realize how much he just – he just liked my brain and uh, and he kept orchestrating. It was really kind of him. Hmm. Yeah, because there's quite a series here. I mean, the Anna Christie with Natasha Richardson and Liam Neeson, uh, Grand Night for Singing, 
uh, Hedda Gabler with with Kelly McGillis, Holiday with Laura Linney and Tony Goldwyn, uh, Frank Langella and the Father, and Summer and Smoke, all in the course of three well, or four years. I mean, yes. I mean, the directors started coming. It wasn't just Todd. I mean, you know, David Warren asked me to do. I mean, the the directors usually would come in with something. I was recommended by Todd for uh, Anna Christie. Um, Holiday was Circle in the Square, though. Oh, I, I missed Actually. And that um, was David Warren as well, right. actually. So um, it was just all of a sudden getting your name known. And um, I think because I had worked on Broadway before as an assistant, it was a known quotient to bring in because, I mean, I think we're blessed with – blessed and cursed depending on how you feel about your own work – how many great designers are working right now? Um, but you know, if you were, if you got your start in regional theater, you could work there for decades and never be recognized by New York. And in fact, as nice as they were when they awarded me the Irene Sheriff Young Master Award, they actually did not even know how many shows I had done it throughout the United States. Hmm. They, they, they knew what I had done in New York. Um, and so I think for me it was a very lucky thing that everybody knew me through those years with the Oni. Well, I've mentioned a number of these regional shows. So clearly, you know, acknowledging that it's not that you were just sitting here in New York only doing New York shows, um, but certainly the New York recognition and then there's an opportunity to stay home a little bit more and, and all of that. I am curious. I mentioned some of the names. I'll mention a couple of others. You worked on a Coriolanus with Christopher Walken. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the, the Harry Hamlin was in The Summer and Smoke. How much of your designing is what's conceptualized by you, the director, and the other designers you're collaborating with? And how much of it comes – once you know who's going to be wearing the clothes? Well, that's a great question because it – you can't not pretend that that's a big question more and more, especially especially in New York, uh, working with the quality of actors we get and all of the places they come from. The Coriolanus, which I think I was recommended to Stephen Burkhoff by Mr. Papp, um, but Chris Walken and and Stephen had such uh, an idiosyncratic, I will say, someone uh, uh, postmodern approach of breaking down that production. Um, I'm going to take a sidebar and say I think one of the things that always helped me was that I didn't bring that much of a style necessarily. I mean, I mean if, if someone said, I need this to be like in sackcloth and in, in a broken down thing, I'd go, okay, great. It's your show. You know, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have my own vi- – I know I have my own visual. I'm not trying to say I don't do that. But I do like to think that I try to get into the director's head a little bit. So when Stephen Burkhoff came in and wanted this broken down, dramaturgically broken down sort of piece – and um, Chris just had these whack ideas. We actually – I decided you had to go with his idea because he actually was formulating his Coriolanus. You know, his Coriolanus would not have armor. His Coriolanus would – I still remember – would come in and say, 
when I said, what do you think when, when you come in and you've sort of put yourself into disguise? And he said, well, I think I'm in a running suit. And I went, well, there we go. Let's give it a try. <laughs> because sometimes you've, you learn something from an actor like that because they're taking you to a place you would not expect. But that sounds like an unusually collaborative process between the actor and the director and in which you were part of mm -hmm. in terms of it's the actor says, I think I would be wearing this. Yeah. I would think that on most productions – tell me if I'm wrong – the actor doesn't say, I think I'd be wearing this, and then you go and do it and show it to the director. Um, you know, it's there are so many – the director is the final word. But there are so many times, especially at this point, and depending on who it is, um, uh, not on a big musical. I mean not on shows that are so big that you have to have a big visual concept. That's Even then, you, you might – you interface with your actors. But say the Glass Menagerie that I just did with Judith Ivey and Gordon Edelstein. Gordon, Gordon didn't – once we determined what the period was and everything, which is we were sort of following the script, um, he did not feel he had to follow what Judith and I would do because he's worked with both of us before. And then in that case, I met with Judith. With a lot of research, I don't think I had even a drawing. At that point, it's just showing things and saying, tell me what you're thinking, you know. Um, I mean, she's adorable, of course, and everything like that. But then, you know, you can find that that the actor can gesture to something and you realize there's maybe something in that garment that helps them bring it home or something. For someone like that too, for Judith, just as a continuation of that collaboration, the first time we actually got together in a fitting room, we tried on a fair amount of authentic clothing that never would have made it through the run, but stuff so that she could actually react to that as well. You let it take it through a process, you know? And sometimes your original sketch ends up on the stage anyway. That, that feels good, and sometimes you just never have it shown. You just made a comment about uh, looking at stuff that would have never made it through the run. Mm -hmm. And coming back to the issue of the manufacture of the costumes, how much do you have to think about the physical needs of the show and the ability of the material, the construction, and so on to hold up to those needs? And I'll say certainly lend me a tenor where people are – bouncing off the furniture, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, do you have to plan for that? Or do you just rebuild them every time they no, go no, through No, 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 no. Yeah. You, no, you would not be beloved by any general manager or producer <laughs> if they had to rebuild something just because it was so beautiful for one week. I mean, some shows have some things like that. But no, you um, – I mean, there is one thing I will say is that well-built clothing can still be real clothing. I mean, the the clothing in Lend Me a Tenor is is principally built the way it would have been built. Maggie's first dress, which she doesn't do that much in, she sort of just you know it's built as lightly as it would be. I would say that the beaded gowns on um, a couple of the women are so heavy with beads that we have learned, I've learned with my work with Barbara and with Ka Kathy Marshall of Tricorn, 
to um, use polyester just because that will last forever. I mean, the Dream Girls, the, the Dream Girls' original design white dresses lasted forever because they were built on man-made fiber. Whereas in the time, they would have been built on silk and that's lovely, but it would have fallen apart. You know, one of the interesting things, even for glass menagerie, is that it can, it, the acting does a certain amount to the clothing with vintage, but actually what often kills everything is the fast change. The 30 seconds that no one sees where everyone's really desperately trying to get in or out of clothing. That's where the most stress comes from. Um, but of course, it also depends on the length of the run, you know, and what you want that garment to do or be. Do you know? Well, certainly on a Broadway show, the hope is always for an extended run. So mm -hmm. designing, say, a Kiss Me Kate, you're really hoping those clothes are going to be worn for a good long time. Whereas when you do a regional theater production, unless it is a co-production or unless it happens to be picked up, you're often designing stuff that's only got to last four or five weeks. Correct. You want it to live longer. Maybe it goes into somebody's stock somewhere. Mm -hmm. But but I guess it's it's not the same need. You know, there's an interesting little example of this because right after I did the glass menagerie with Gordon and Judith, um, Harris Eulen called and said, "Will you do the glass menagerie?" And I said, "But I just I I will have just done it. You don't want me." And he said, "No, you you can do it." And actually, I thought about it, and, and it was with Amy Irving, who is an exceptional Amanda as well, I have to say, because that was only going to be for like, I don't know, such a short time in East Hampton. I actually did play a little experiment, and I used even more frail things on the gentleman collar dress, even for our three-week, 15-performance run. And it was beautiful, and it was shredded. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, if you saw it late in the run, <laughs> the Wingfields were even more down at their heels than, uh, than well, you I might mean, have you realized. Well, I mean, you know, it's just there's so much that happens. The sudden getting up in the heel, getting caught in the helm of a dress, all of that sort of thing. And thank God I built um, – hopefully the clothing in the glass menagerie didn't look too substantial in the one with Judith, but – it's gone from the Long Wharf, and now it's played in New York, and now it's going on to the uh, Center Theater Group. So you never really know how long they're going to be able to last anyway or how, it, how much of a life they may have. I've mentioned research a couple of times, but we haven't really talked about it. Um, so I want to use uh, two examples. First, the Marivaux trilogy that you did, which – was done initially at the McCarter and spawned mm -hmm. multiple productions at other regionals. You were working with Stephen Wadsworth on those. Mm -hmm. um, now, that was a very distinct period. Mm -hmm. did, did that work require you to study more on those than, say, other shows that you've come across? Mm -hmm. I think I think it when we first started I actually don't know I can't quite recall that I had done that much 18th century so of course it actually did take a long time for me to study it along with that with Stephen I was also doing 18th century opera and everything so it it's it's sort of fun and interesting because it it turns into a um 
it turns into a years-long research thing because you don't go, oh, well, I, well, we got it in you know 1998, so it must be fine. Each time you do it, it's taught me to go back and and study every garment I see uh, authentic and non-authentic and learn from it. It's one of it's actually a, a sort of a, a hobby for me, and and makes it fun. But I mean. Uh, I would say that I probably spend as much time researching anything, even if it's contemporary. Another show that I wanted to ask about the research for was Golden Child, because certainly different country, different era. Um, mm-hmm. How did you how did you attack that? Did you? Well, I was even more nervous about that because uh, I was out of the safety zone of the Western culture, and I. Uh, I actually did a, a lot of research. I had gone to the Chinese museums and libraries in New York. I had found what books there were at the time. Um, and I guess what I found and I feel comfortable with on a certain level is that they – is that the vocabulary of that clothing was um, – was a little more limited as, as opposed to Western culture where you would see the 20s turn into the 30s, turn into the 40s. You actually can see the same garments in Chinese culture lasting through centuries with with more subtle permutations like all of a sudden softer fabrics for the 30s for the women as it went into something else. Um, but um, – by the time I was done, I felt comfortable. And I guess my little litmus test was when I was having a conversation with the three ladies when we first did it at the public, Sai Chin, the uh, elder, fabulous actress. And she was having none of me at the beginning. <laughs> she was like sort of talking and all of a sudden she said, well, you know, there's, there's an undergarment. There's an undergarment that everybody wears and uh, you should really learn about it. And I said – yeah, I know, but I just don't know. Do I say dao dao or do do? And she turned and she said, "Well, I never knew the name, so you went up on me." <laughs> <laughs> so you proved you'd done your homework, <laughs> and then she'd talk to you. Um, you mentioned a few moments ago about two glass menageries fairly close together. Obviously, different directors have different approaches. You talked about the Hamlets earlier, but is it a case of when dealing with classics, you don't want to necessarily look at the same work in in too close uh, a temporal proximity. Well, I was I was definitely worried about it. I guess I thought the world would be looking at my doing two glass menageries one after the other, but I don't think the world was aware of it. But um, so I, I was concerned. But I mean, I I will say that if there was a piece of strong research that we had definitely taken that was on Judith um, or in, the, in that situation. I just did not show that to Amy. I just – I showed her as much. Um, but, you know, that's where the spirit and the feeling of each of the actors comes in because when it came to the gentleman collar dress, both were based on, on photographs of authentic garments we found on the internet. You know, I pulled from books. I pulled from this. But, of course, I use the internet a lot. And they went in – one went south and one went north. Hmm. You know, it's um, it's just the way their, their personalities were. So um, – but while I was working on it, I was always 
I was a, both of the men, let me go back, both of the directors wanted it in period and they wanted a realistic production. That having said, I think we learned a certain amount on the first production about what I felt things were and I could be talked out of them. The trickiest thing was that Harris would ask me a question about time change and I had since the production in New York with Judith and Gordon had a dream quality, the time change was, especially for Laura, was not as realistic as other productions. So we had to deal with that in East Hampton because uh, Laura, in the script, leaves after the first scene, for instance, and time goes by, whereas the production here, Laura never leaves and discovers the glass menagerie within the desk of her brother. Let me try to turn the question around. In Instead of the issue of doing the same production a couple of times in close proximity, have you ever had a situation where a show is complete, maybe it's even been running a while, and you look at it and say, boy, I wish I'd done that differently? Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid all you can do usually is, I mean, for, I guess if it's a, I guess if it's a Broadway show and, um, and if it's doing fine and new people come in, then if you talk to everybody, you can talk about making a change if it has not been brought to your attention already, um, but it's hard, especially because you know, as a, as you know, I work in ballet and opera and everything as well. And when you design a lot of shows, you're designing really, really specifically. But then at a certain point, it turns into a product, and you can't keep redesigning because a) there's no money for it, and b) it can throw off the entire work of what else is going on. Well, it leads me right to my next question, which was that. The production timetable, certainly between opera and theater, is mm -hmm. very different mm -hmm. because with theater, you can conceptualize, but you have to build it to the actor, and the actor is often not cast much before it goes on stage. Mm -hmm. In opera, if it's a new production, mm -hmm. you're sometimes conceiving it far in advance of when yeah. you really get the people and – and they're big productions and you get locked in. Does Do they offer you different opportunities or different ways of thinking working in those fields? Well, I prefer the way it works in theater, really. I just think it's more immediate. I've learned to work in the opera world. A bit. What they basically will usually do, you'll usually do your bulk of of, of work on the chorus because in most companies the chorus is ever present and they are known. So once you get the chorus master or mistress to say who the singers are, then you can – and if you and the director say I, this guy's a soldier and this guy's a priest, whatever, you know, then you can actually work on it. The irony in opera is that is that the principals come in at the, at the last minute, quite often at the last minute and they're in – there's just an unspoken rule in opera that the measurements have to be wrong 
and it's better if they're drastically wrong so that you can all freak out. But also if the singer comes in and they have a big opinion, I mean when I've done a lot of big things with important singers, you try as much as you can to get to them one way or the other through via mail or internet or when they're stopping in New York because you you don't want two weeks before for your principal artist to say, I, I don't intend to wear this when you make it. You know, and that's happened. It's happened to all of us, I think. Of course, it's made fun of in Lend Me a Tenor, where you have, have the opera singer who travels with his own costume. <laughs> doesn't matter what's going on around but him. But that's He's... true. But that was based on reality. Joan Sutherland took all of her clothes around. She could never be counted on because she was a woman of size and stature. So she would show up and she'd go, this is my bohem costume. But Mrs. Sutherland, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> You also mentioned very quickly budget and certainly the difference between an opera budget and a theater budget, the difference between a Broadway budget and an off-Broadway budget. And we should say that even though you've done all of these major opera and theater work, you will work with smaller companies. You recently did a show down at the Atlantic, mm-hmm. not, which, which in scale mm-hmm. is going to be very different. How, how do you wrangle – doing what you want to do with what I assume are wildly varying budgets? Um, I don't know. I think it's just street smarts and experience um, because you can't, you know, the bitter comment we make over designer cocktails. It's like we can't put a note in the program. By the way, I had no money on this. (laughs) Aren't you allowed to write your own bio? (laughs) Yeah, that would be a sort of sad bio. Martin Paclatinus wants you to know that he had no money. Um, But, um, uh, you know, I, you know, there is less money, but a lot of the theaters that I work with well, I mean, I mean, for the Atlantic thing, we were able to use a lot of rental stuff and we were using authentic stuff and I bought a lot of inexpensive vintage stuff. Um, and if that show had been happening on Broadway, to be honest, it could have almost been done the same way. Hmm. We would have probably spent more because we would have presumed that it was going to run a longer time, as you would say. Then we're back to that. Yeah. yeah, but even when I did the Diary of Anne Frank, we found lots and lots of authentic clothing because a lot of it was strong enough to last. If it's there and if it suits the purpose, there's no reason not to do it. Hmm. When we did Is He Dead, the Mark Twain play, that was done as a collaboration of with a place called Cosprop in London and I actually co- pulled a lot of clothing and they made some to my specifications, but they basically owned it. So that was an ongoing rental for the little time that we ran. You mentioned renting. Mm-hmm. Renting a piece here or a piece there. Are there shows where ultimately you're, you're designing by finding completely yeah. existing materials and it's really about coordinating yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, it goes into that thing. Do we consider it just coordinating when you pull it? No, because you use your design. The I, same way I didn't mean to use a bad word. No, 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 no. But it comes up all of the time. It comes up all of the time. If I if I do a contemporary show and I'm shopping it out of the stores of of New York, um, 
someone might say, oh, you're styling it. And it's like, well, I guess so. But it, I guess you could say I'm styling a 1920s show when I pull it from research because my eye goes to something and grabs it. Um, but, uh, but, but that's not your point. Your point was um, it, it, it's harder usually. It's, it's exciting because a lot of times a lot of the shows that you want that for, the clothing already has like a life within it and it's, it's already um, you know, brought something to the table artistically. But, but if it's not on the rack – then you can't bring it in. So if someone is saying, I thought I was going to be in this kind of thing and you can't find it, then you're stuck and you mm -hmm. should be making it. I ask this constantly of actors. I put the caveat of, of course, there are many plays that haven't been written yet. But is there a show out there that you love that you've never had a chance to design? <laughs> I uh, I bet there is, but I don't know that you're going to get it from me. It's I I, I learned a while ago that um, what I want as much as the show is the experience. So even if I got the show, if it wasn't with the right group of people, it could just be nothing. I think I have a good list of shows, but I don't know. I'll. I'm not going to bring it up. To <laughs> I will tell you that we've had a designer on this show who spoke of wanting to do a show they never they ne thought no one would consider them for, and it got heard. So, oh really? I'll just say that <laughs> I, I won't force you. We're not that kind of show. But so I'll move on to to a corollary question. Um, is there someone you have always wanted to create a costume for, or? Oh. Is there someone who you particularly enjoyed working with in putting a costume on them? Well, I, I, I've been – I'll take the latter first and just make it general. I've had far too many great experiences with actors to try to, uh, to, try to name that, especially if it's <laughs> on the air. But the, far too many times. I, lo I, I love actors and I love performers in general. And I, it is the oldest line in the world. It's truly what I believe, though, that they are the messengers and we're supposed to be helping them get to the stage and everything. So that's great. But um, actors that I would love to work with. I mean, do you ever just look at someone and say, boy, I'd love to. I never got a chance. I haven't, I haven't had a chance yet with Marion Southers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but um, golly. Um, no, you know, I – Again, I guess I, I – I'm going to put this in a positive light. I guess I sort of think that it could happen. So I just sort of go – and there are so many people of talent. I don't know that I, I – I bet another day I could answer that, but not now. I'm confused. That's too much for me. Hmm. Well, I want to finish on one seemingly funny story. Um, when you did the most recent revival of Greece, mm -hmm. I read that you went into that show saying that it wouldn't be right for the kids to be wearing leather jackets because leather jackets wouldn't have been allowed <laughs> at the school. Yes, yes. Um, how, how did that turn out? Not too well. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, um, that – um, 
that was oh, that's a tricky one. That was a bit of research that we all knew, and that was part of our original concept. And we realized that the product was not helping. So we went on to so later on when we went on national tour, leather jackets were everywhere, and um, I think we realized it wasn't. It's a great piece, but it wasn't a Hamlet or something. And sometimes verisimilitude has to be sacrificed for audience expectation. Exactly. We had a big problem. That show, more than I think almost any show, although I must admit, I'll always remember one gentleman coming up to me right in a preview of Kiss Me Kate and going, I've waited 50 years to see Kiss Me Kate again. Please don't disappoint me. (laughs) And you go... I hope I don't. <laughs> and did you hear from him again? <laughs> uh, no, I'm going to presume he loved it and everything like that. But um, um, but Greece was really tricky because Greece, you were working with um, whatever anyone thinks of the 50s. You're working with the people who did the original production, um, who had a really strong feeling about about it. People who remember the revival on Broadway, the one. Um, Jeff Calhoun's production, the Tommy Toon supervised the Tommy, one. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And stronger than all of that, the movie. Mm. When we went on national tour, our pink lady jackets, which were black in the Broadway production and black in the original production, were pink on tour because more generations knew the movie than anyone knew – than had known the original production on Broadway. Uh, Supposedly, talking about Greece in such a deep way, but the original one was like so proudly skanky and, you know, really like pulled from the street sort of thing. And they really, you know, I had some of the actors from that production say before hours happened. I don't know what they they never I don't know if they ever told me what they thought afterwards, but they had been so affronted by the Tommy Toon production because they thought it was supposed to be. You know, skankier and not as idealized. I never saw that production. Um, and they, but I don't know. I love that though. I love the fact that here it is, Greece, and these actors. Some of them came into like their age in it, and they just it was for them one of those act moments that they remember forever. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been. Absolutely fascinating and considering I've known you for 23 years, <laughs> uh, an opportunity to learn a lot of things I never knew. Marty Pacladinas, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. For Downstage Center and the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening. And no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater. Hello, I'm Heather Hitchens, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. I hope you enjoyed today's edition of Downstage Center. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Our engineer for today's show is Chad Bernhard. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free at americantheaterwing.org. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website, americantheaterwing.org, and click Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theater Wing, thanks for your support and thanks for listening.